How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study this evening, and we're starting a new study this evening on salvation. Let's uh, bow our heads and have a few moments of silent prayer to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary. Make sure we're in fellowship, filled with the Spirit, ready to concentrate on the study of God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening, that your word helps us to understand who we are, your plan and purpose for our lives, the plan of salvation, the plan of the spiritual life. Father, as we study your word now, we pray that you would uh, help us to understand these things, that we might assimilate them into our thinking, that we might think divine viewpoint instead of human viewpoint, that we might be conformed to the image of your Son. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, some of you may ask the question, why are we having a series on salvation? After all, most of you are saved. You don't need to hear the gospel again. You know the gospel. You hear it quite frequently. Not only that, but many of you, as we just indicated, have been uh, studying doctrine for 15, 20, some of you 30 or 40 years. We won't count up how many years that uh, Dave Tongren's been around. I don't know if I can count that high. It goes beyond... I don't have that many fingers and toes. But many of you have been around a long time, and since I have been here now for almost four and a half years, we have gone through a study of the Gospel of John and First John. We've gone through Galatians, where we spent a lot of time studying the doctrine of justification by faith, and we spent a bit of time in James as well clarifying the Gospel. We have spent a lot of time in the last four years, uh, here and there, clarifying the gospel, addressing certain issues, especially those related to uh, lordship salvation. So why take the time to uh, focus on salvation now? Well, I think it's important that we look back sort of over uh, what we've studied the last four years and pull some of these things together in a fresh approach so that it's a concentrated study just on the area of salvation. Secondly, it provides a concentrated study just on the doctrines of salvation that can be used in the future by the prep school teachers as a resource for teaching the children downstairs. And then third, it can provide a basic uh, theology that can easily be assimilated so that when you're witnessing to somebody and they are having trouble understanding salvation, that this is something you can hand them. Today you can hand them, maybe this will be 12 or 15 lessons. This is not going to be a lengthy series. One of the reasons I want it short, I, I want to do something that is beyond the basics. You know, I, I can do a basic on salvation in one night, in one hour. But I want to do something that goes beyond the basics, but I don't want to 
look at every gnat's hair and tweak every uh, microbe in the doctrine of salvation. So it's not going to be a 50, 60, 70 hour series on salvation. We're going to look at something that you can just hand somebody and once we get into uh, the technology, get everything working up there that, that, um, well, we have all the technology. We just need to get to the point where we're distributing it. Uh, we can put this 15 lessons on one CD in MP3 format, and then we, you can just hand that to somebody. And it's a nice, simple, compact 15, 12 to 15 hour series explaining what the Bible teaches about salvation. So that's all of why I am taking the time to develop sort of a beyond-the-basics doctrine of salvation. What I've thought about as I've gone into this is that maybe once a year I'll do the same thing for each of the seven branches of systematic theology, just a nice, concise, basic or beyond-the-basic approach to theology proper, bibliology, uh, pneumatology, Christology, all the different areas of, of salvation so that that can then provide a good basic library for especially younger believers who are coming along and trying to put together what the Scripture says. Furthermore, we have a sp- scriptural admonishment to focus on the message of salvation. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2 And we'll start in verse 1. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. And here we read, For this reason we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. So this is a warning in Ephesians, I mean in Hebrews. There are a number of warning passages in Hebrews, and they are addressed to believers, not to unbelievers. That's one of the major issues in salvation is uh, how to handle these problem passages in Hebrews, and we'll come back to that towards the end of this series when we address some of the issues related to eternal security and how we know that we are saved. For this reason, the writer of Hebrews says, now, whenever you see something like this, you, you have to ask a question, and that is, is the reason what comes after the statement for this reason I mean, is that just the introduction to giving the reason? Or is the reason what has already been stated previously? Now, we've seen that the writer uh, John in the Gospel of John uses some different uh, semantic uh, or or, or syntactic arrangements in order to uh, tell you which way to go on this. But the writer of Hebrews uh, is a little different. It's clear that this reason has been stated in chapter 1. Now, if you stop and you just look back at chapter 1, go back to the very first verse where we read, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the, by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. The subject of verse 1, the subject, the grammatical subject of that verse which is just part of the extended sentence that goes down through verse 4, the grammatical subject of that sentence that begins in 1-1 and goes through 1-4 is God. Now, it's followed immediately by a relative clause that is going to describe various things about God. 
and that is the remainder of verse 1. So the remainder of verse 1 is a subordinate clause. But the person we're talking about is God and something that God did. We don't pick up what God did till you look at the main verb in verse 2. And in verse 2 we read that God in these last days has spoken. Now I'm using, I've got a New King James up here, and it splits the helping verb from the main verb. So in the New King James it reads, has in these last days spoken. But I think the New American Standard uh, translates it better. In these last days has spoken. So the subject of this lengthy sentence from 1-1 to 1-4 is God. And the main verb is has spoken. Everything else in 1-1 to the end of the chapter tells us something about either God or the uh, dative clause, the prepositional clause, actually at the, at the end of that first part of 2, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. Everything else from verse 2 down through the end of chapter 1 is telling us something about the importance of his Son. So the main idea in chapter 1 is that God has spoken by his son. Everything else talks about the by his son, and we lose the main verb, which is God has spoken. And because God has spoken by his son, the writer then comes to verse 1 of chapter 2 and says, for this reason, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard. See, the subject in 2.1 is the what we have heard, what was spoken by his son back in 1.2. Is that clear? For this reason, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard. What is it that we have heard? We have heard what was spoken, what was revealed by his Son. Not what was given by the prophets in the Old Testament. Not what was mediated by the angels to Moses in the Mosaic Law. But it is what was revealed specifically by his Son that we are to pay much closer attention to. That means that we have to concentrate on this. In fact, we have to continuously remind ourselves of what was spoken by his son. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it, indicating that it is a reality that believers can drift away from an understanding of the gospel. They can drift away from the understanding the grace of the gospel, and that is why it is important for believers to continuously go back and be reminded of what we have in salvation. Then in verse 2 we read, For if the word spoken through the angels proved unalterable, and see there was an entire discourse on how God used the angels in giving revelation in the uh, Old Testament. So in verse 2 he's picking up on that and saying, If the word spoken by the angels was unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense, then how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? The so great a salvation is the term that refers back to and in summary fashion, what Jesus Christ did at the first advent where he performed the work of salvation on the cross. So the main idea, when we look at verse 3 of chapter 2, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, throws us back to understanding what God spoke, what he was revealed through the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the revealed Word of God, not the written Word of God, and the highest revelation of God, not just what He spoke and what was revealed through Him, but also what He demonstrated in His own life. So there is a scriptural admonishment here that we must pay close attention 
to the doctrine of salvation, uh, lest we drift away from it. So we're going to have an approach. What, what is our approach going to be in this particular study? I want to have a twofold approach. Two things I want to do in, 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 uh, as we approach this subject and as we organize all of the material. The first is to approach it in sort of a question-answer format. There's a lot of questions that people are asking about salvation. And I've got a list of them that I'm going to put up on the screen in a second. But I want you to, as you are going to write many of them down, I want you to be thinking if there are any questions that you have about salvation that, that's not covered in these questions. Because if you come up with a good question that I didn't come up with, I want to know about it so that I can stick it in here and we will cover that. Because I'm trying to think of it in terms of the kinds of questions that are being asked by people today. How do I know I'm saved? What is the relationship of works to faith? Things like that. So here's the list of questions. First of all, what are we saved from? What are we saved from? Second, what are the mechanics of salvation. Well, actually, something got dropped out of this. Something is missing. The first two questions are, the first question is, what is salvation? I don't know how that disappeared from the slide. It was there earlier. What is salvation? That's question number one. Question number two is, why does God save us? Why is God concerned about saving mankind? The third question is, what are we saved from? The third question is, what are we saved from? The fourth question is, what are the mechanics of salvation? The fifth question is, how are we saved? That's a little bit different. The mechanics of salvation is just exactly what takes place in the process of being saved. What's the relationship of justification to regeneration to faith? How do those relate to the word saved? What's the, what, what's the internal mechanics of salvation itself, and then how are we saved? And that is, is it by faith alone? Is it is it ritual? Is it works? What what? How exactly is a believer saved? How nor not? How is a believer saved? How is a person saved? Sixth, who saves us? Now in church history, see, there's there's a couple of different ways we can say, well, God saves us, but most people will say God saves us, but. The real thrust of this sentence is what role, if any, does man play in the process? And so we'll look at that in a little, uh, little detail. Who saves us? What does it mean to be saved? Next, on what basis? On what basis are we saved? Next, what are the conditions? Of salvation. What are the conditions of salvation? Do we have to do anything to be saved? Do we have to do anything to maintain our salvation? When are we saved? At what point does it take place? And is that a, is it a point in time or is it a process? Next question: Can salvation be lost once you're saved? Can you lose your salvation? The next is: Why doesn't God save everybody? If God wants everybody to be saved, why doesn't he save everybody? Next, can we have a 100% certainty of our salvation? There are many people today who either they think that you can lose your salvation or they don't think that in this life you can be 100% sure of your salvation. 
How do you know you're saved? That's part of that question. How do you know you're saved? Then what must we believe to be saved? What is the irreducible minimum that you have to believe in order to be saved? Obviously, a six-year-old isn't going to have a full-orbed understanding of the kenosis and the hypostatic union and substitutionary atonement to be saved. So what is the irreducible minimum that we must believe in order to be saved. Then there are some secondary questions that usually crop up that are part of these broader questions. And one is, how young can a person be saved? How young can a person be and still be saved? Second, what about those who are too young to understand the gospel? What if a child dies, an infant dies? What about those who are too young or perhaps mentally incapable of understanding the gospel. What happens to them? Can they still be saved? And then in terms of evangelism or witnessing, what exactly is the gospel? What is? How should you express the gospel? What is the content of the gospel? So now that's a different, slightly different question of, of than the question of salvation, but it is an outgrowth of it in a and once we answer the other questions, then it'll be almost self-evident what the gospel, uh, what the gospel consists in. Now, the second part of our approach is that I want to, as much as possible, approach this from an inductive study of the scriptures. We want to make sure it comes from the scriptures, and not and it's not simply some sort of theological study. And the reason I emphasize that is because. Too often the problem and much of the problem that we encounter today in the confusion of the gospel and confusion of salvation is a result of the fact that there are theological systems that are governing people's understanding of theology and not the scriptures. For example, in Reformed theology, and it is the father of lordship salvation, Reformed theology is a system that basically was calcified at the end of the 17th century. By 1600, remember the Reformation began in 1517 on October the 31st when Martin Luther, who was an Augustinian priest, that means for those of you who don't come out of a Roman Catholic background, he was a a monk in a monastic order of St. Augustine. And he uh, went back to the Scriptures and studied St. Augustine as well as the Scriptures and came to an understanding that we could not save ourselves. No works, no ritual could be involved in salvation. Nothing could make us savable before God. Solid Augustinian theology. And that uh, salvation had to be by faith in Christ or justification was by faith alone in Jesus Christ. He was followed by a French reformer by the name of John Calvin. John Calvin left France and moved to Geneva where he headed up what's called the French Swiss. Remember, Switzerland is made up of different uh, groups. You have in the south, they're, they're, they'll speak more Italian, and so you have more of an Italian Swiss population. In the, in the northwest, you have more French Swiss. The, the predominant language is, is more French. And if you go to the uh, northern part or the eastern part, it's more Germanic, and that's the German-Swiss area. So in the French-Swiss area, the French-Swiss Reformation was started by Calvin, the German-Swiss by Zwingli. And Calvin, uh, Calvin's followers, who are known as Calvinists, Reformed theology, often, uh, dem- often 
exemplified in Presbyterian or congregational churches, early congregational churches, not the modern liberal or con- liberal congregational or Presbyterian churches. Uh, that's called Reformed theology. And Reformed theology, basically, they thought, well, we've got it all nailed down here at the end of the 1600s, and this is it. And they, they wrote their creeds. And in 1617, there was a major theological battle with the Reformed theologians in Holland. That, and uh, that at, they met, and you had two different groups that met at a place called Dort, a city in uh, in Holland. That's spelled D-O-R-D-T. And at the Synod of Dort, you had one group called the Remonstrance. And the Remonstrance didn't agree with Calvinism as it had basically solidified by the end of the 1600s. And they had their five points that they wanted to debate. And they were students of a man by the name of James Arminius. And they became known as Arminians, A-R-M-I-N-I-A-N-S. That's not an E in there. That's Arminius, A-R-M-I. If it's A-R-M-E, you're talking about an ethnic group over in the area of Turkey. They're not Armenians. They're Arminians. Okay, you just got to get that straight, otherwise you'll confuse somebody. They believed, first of all, that man was completely able to save himself. That This went back to an uh, early 4th century heresy called Pelagianism, that every individual is born morally neutral just as Adam was originally created, so that man was completely able, that man was conditionally elected. That means God chose man on the basis of something he saw in man. Third, they said that Man could resist God's grace. Fourth, they said that Jesus Christ died for all, every single human being. And fifth, they said that you could lose your salvation. So those were the five points that were taught. Now, uh, Arminius himself did not really teach all of that, but as so often happens in church history, you have somebody that comes along and they teach a certain theological system, and then somebody comes along after them and they they take it to an extreme. Well, that happened with Arminius, and it also happened with Calvin. Calvin's Calvin's theology was uh, hardened by a and systematized by his lieutenant, a man by the name of Theodore Beza, and Beza strongly systematized this, Calvin's theology, and he made it even more Calvinistic, and he believed in double predestination, and he also held to limited atonement, two views which Calvin himself did not hold to. So the followers of Calvin reacted. See, all of this is a reaction. Uh, The Arminians were teaching their five points, and the Calvinists reacted to the other extreme, and they taught their five points, which are usually summarized with the acronym TULIP, total depravity, unconditional, unconditional election, limited atonement, Christ died only for the elect, irresistible grace, meaning that when the Holy Spirit begins to work on the believer, uh, or work on the unbeliever, he can't resist it, and he will respond to the gospel positively. And then perseverance of the saints, 
which is the doctrine that if you are truly saved, you will persevere, you will continue to grow and advance in the spiritual life. In fact, if you are truly saved, you will uh, demonstrate certain fruits in your life, and that's the basis for your assurance of salvation. Now, that's where lordship salvation comes in, is under the category P for perseverance. And usually what happens is that people are split apart into these two camps and these two extremes, but they represent the two opposite, two opposites. Arminianism all the way over on the left and hyper-Calvinism are really, see, I don't like the term hyper-Calvinism because wherever you are on this spectrum, if anybody is more Calvinistic than you are, then you tend to call them a hyper-Calvinist. But hyper-Calvinism is a technical term for somebody who believes in supra-lapsarian five-point Calvinism. Now, I don't want to get sidetracked by explaining supra-lapsarianism. It's a, in the decree of God, there are several decrees, and in superlapsarianism, you have the decree to fall. That's the Latin word lapse, where lapsarian comes from. That means to fall. That precedes the decree to save man. In uh, moderate lapsarianism or sublapsarianism, you have the decree to save before the decree to fall. To the, the decree for man to fall, which makes God a much more merciful, saving God. So only superlapsarian five-point Calvinism is the uh, extreme Calvinism. Lewis Berry Chafer and Dallas Seminary has been historically four-point Calvinism. You read Chafer, he was raised a Presbyterian. He held to four-point Calvinism. Now, four-point Calvinism means that he holds to everything except limited atonement. When people refer to four-point Calvinism, they refer to somebody who holds to uh, everything but limited atonement. Actually, Chafer was moderate on perseverance. He took only the eternal security aspect of it, and he didn't actually uh, define some of the other categories quite as extreme as some Calvinists will. But this has been, this is typical and many from within our tradition, uh, are along this spectrum are more like two to, would say they're two to three point Calvinists, if anything. And, uh, because we believe in eternal security, we believe in original sin, but we don't believe in total depravity, and we'll get into this. We don't believe in a total depravity in the same way that most Calvinists define total depravity, that is, as, as a complete and total inability of man. So I don't even like using the term either of those terms anymore. I think there is a a mediate or middle theology, a mediate view of soteriology because in both Arminianism and Calvinism there is there each point has a certain amount of truth to it because they are going to the scriptures. But what happens is once you harden a theological system, then you start coming back and you interpret the scriptures in light of your theology. You're no longer letting the scriptures determine your theology. You're letting your theology determine the meaning of scripture. And that's what I mean by doing abstract theology. You don't, that's poor methodology. And here's how we do methodology. 
you start off as you have on the bottom level, there's four things that you do in studying the scriptures. The first is textual criticism. That has to do with with determining exactly what the original text says. When there are disagreements between some manuscripts, you have to compare manuscripts and and look at that and look at the difference, the age of the manuscripts, and a number of other factors that come into to the study of textual criticism to determine what the original text says. Second, you do word studies. You determine the exact meaning of the words. And for those who are skilled at it and go through seminary, you do word studies not by looking up the meaning of a word in a dictionary, but by starting at all of the places in which the word is used in Scripture, and then you inductively determine from usage the various categories of meaning. See, that's what a lexicon has done. A lexicon is a Greek dictionary. What a Greek dictionary has done is they've gone through, and the same thing is true for Webster's Dictionary. You look at, at Webster's or American Heritage Dictionary, any, any English dictionary, that simply reflects the ways in which that word is used and the meanings assigned to that word. That's why dictionaries will change over the years. And dictionaries are not absolutes. They simply reflect usage. And the first listing that's listed in a dictionary is the most common meaning. The second meaning is the second most common meaning. The third is the third most common meaning. But if you are trained in, in the languages and gone to seminary, then you, you're trained to do word studies by getting into the original data itself. This is called inductive study. You're not starting with a, uh, a preconceived idea of what the word means and then uh, logically developing from that, you're going to look at the data, and you can categorize the data. And that's important to do because there are times when you're going to disagree with a dictionary. And some of the theological dictionaries have been done by wonderful Greek scholars, but they happen to be liberal European Protestants. So they don't have a, any, they're probably not saved, they're not believers, they don't have the Holy Spirit, and they've got presuppositions that are affecting the way they're interpreting the raw data. So you have to go in and look at the data, and this is the kind of thing that that uh, computers now have just made incredible. I mean, some of the programs that are available now, in two seconds I can get a listing of every single usage of any form of any word, uh, any Greek word in the uh, New Testament. And so that has done wonders for developing uh, the study of words and their meanings in just the last 20 years. And because of computers, we've learned a lot of things about Greek. And, in fact, some rules that were taught, some hard and fast rules that were taught about Greek syntax uh, 40 or 50 years ago have been shown to be completely false because of what we've been able to uh, do with computers now. Then you look at syntax, that's grammar, that has, is how the words relate to one another. Syntax is not a tax on sin. It has to do with how the words are arranged together and what, you, what meaning you derive from the grammar and the grammatical structure of the passage. And then context takes it another step further to look at not just the verse, but how it relates to the verses surrounding it and to the subject matter 
of the writer. And this is really important because a lot of times when you look up in a systematic theology, you go to Chafer, you go to Walvoord, you go to any number of books that are systematic theologies on salvation, you might see a point listed and then in parentheses they'll list five or six verses. Well, it's important to go look at each of those verses and then to exegete them in context. And I can't tell you how many times I discovered that there are verses that are traditionally used as proof texts for a particular point that when you study the text in context, that's not what the writer's talking about at all. So it's important then to do those contextual studies. Once you do that, then you do your exegesis, and that is studying the meaning of the text, extracting from the text itself what that verse says, what it says in the context of a sentence, what that sentence says in the context of a paragraph, and then relating it on to the whole of the book. Then you do biblical theology, and by biblical theology, I don't mean theology that is biblical versus theology that is not biblical. Biblical theology is a technical term for breaking down the writers of the Bible and looking at the theology of each individual book or each individual writer of the Bible. So you can then break down, you can do a study of 1 Samuel and First and Second Samuel because they were one book in the original Hebrew. And you say, okay, what do we learn about God in First Samuel and Second Samuel? What do we learn about man in, in the books of Samuel? What do we learn about Israel in the books of Samuel? So you're not relating it any further than just what Samuel has revealed. You can look at uh, John, the writings of John, and say, what do we learn about fellowship in the writings of John? You're not relating it to Paul. You're just, you just look at what John has said. And then you take it to the next level, which is relating it to the overall context of the Bible. And that's where you develop your systematic theology uh, categories. So that's the process. And salvation is one of the categories of systematic theology. So that's the methodology that you use. But you have to make sure that when you get to the top of this uh, pyramid, and when I get to a point where I can finalize the chart, there'll, there'll be a pyramid there. When you get to the apex of the pyramid, you always have to make sure that it doesn't break off of the pyramid and then just start free-floating in your thinking. See, that's what happened with Calvinism and with Arminianism is that's when they, they did Bible study and they end up with a systematic theology. But then you always have to go back and make sure that your theological conclusions are based then have not left the grounding in the word study syntax, syntax and context of the passage. That's what happens when you get in just abstract theology. And you know what that's like because you get into an argument or a discussion with somebody at work over some point of the Bible, and nobody's quoting any verses. All you're doing is saying, well, you know, God is fair, and therefore God's going to do X, Y, or Z. Well, is God fair? What do you mean by fair? Ground that in a passage. Let's look at what the Bible says. And what happens is all of a sudden we start free-floating. We come up with a conclusion. The Bible says God is fair. Well, if God is fair, then that must mean A, B, C, and D. Well, it may not mean A, B, C, and D because those points may not be grounded and you may not be able to ground them in the text. In fact, one or two of them might be different from what the Bible says. So we always have to make sure that we are biblical and we're always grounded in what the text says. So my approach in this is I want to look at the key passages of Scripture and to examine them in context in order to build a sound, inductively derived 
theology and understanding of salvation. So let's just start with the first question, which is, what is salvation? What is salvation? We're just going to look at it very briefly uh, by way of introduction that the word and look at it in terms of the word usage. In the English Bible, there are over 470 English words related to our, uh, salv- or, excuse me, the English words in this subject, salvation, savior, saved, to be, being saved. All of the words in that word group of saved are, are used over 470 times just in terms of the English. Now there's many other words that are synonyms to, uh, to those words in, uh, in, in Greek and Hebrew, but just in English you have over 470 uh, usage of that word group. In the Old Testament, the main word that is used for salvation is based on a Hebrew verb, yasha. Yasha looks like this. Y-A-S-H-A, and then sort of a glottal stop, yasha. And Yasha means to be delivered, to be healed, to be saved, to be rescued. It is the root for the noun salvation, which is Yeshua. Yeshuat. And that word then is converted into a name, Yeshua, which is Y-E-S-H-U-A-H, and that is the name that is transliterated Joshua and then later Jesus. It is transliterated into, into Greek as Jesus, and that is from Yeshua, the Hebrew, and it relates to the noun for, for Savior. So that word basically means to heal, to deliver, to rescue, and the context tells you from what from what you are being delivered or rescued. So it can talk about somebody who's in battle and is rescued from death in the midst of the battle. It can talk about somebody who is sick and they are healed from their sickness, or it can be used to describe spiritual salvation. The Greek word that is comparable to Yeshua is the verb sozo. S-O-Z-O, and those are long O's with that omega there. And you have the noun soter for salvation. And sozo has the same semantic range. It means to heal, to deliver, to rescue, and to save. And it depends on the context what you're being, whether it is a physical deliverance or healing or whether it is a spiritual deliverance or healing. Now, the trouble is that when you do a word study of these words, they're used in various tenses throughout the the Scriptures. For example, in the New Testament, you have the word, the verb sozo, used in a past tense in Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved. You've been saved. It's in the past tense. It's completed. Other passages suggest that salvation is an ongoing process. For example, in 1 Corinthians 1.18, we have the statement, For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to us who are being saved, it's a present active part, or a present passive participle, 
We are being saved. It is the power of God. The present participle suggests a process, an ongoing process. And then still other passages like Romans 5, 9 have sowed so in the future tense, much more than having now been justified. See, that's a past tense. Having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved, future passive indicative, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. And this indicates the three stages of salvation that at when we initially express faith alone in Christ alone, that's phase one, when we are justified, and at that point we are saved from the penalty of sin. And phase two is that ongoing process of sanctification. You're being saved today. You're being saved tomorrow. You were being saved yesterday. And Dr. Earl Rodmacher, who's the uh, chancellor now of Western Conservative Baptist Seminary, always likes to get up in front of a crowd like this and say, well, are you all are, are y'all saved today? Did you get saved today? Did you get saved yesterday? Are you going to get saved tomorrow? Because he's trying to emphasize the fact that that if, and by and large, this word is used to describe the ongoing process of salvation in the New Testament, the ongoing process of what we call sanctification, spiritual life. We are constantly working out our salvation, and that's phase two. And then phase three, the future tense, is when we are glorified, when we're absent from the body and face-to-face with the Lord. At phase one, we're saved from the uh, penalty of sin. At phase two, we're saved from the power of sin, or we are being saved from the power of sin in the present tense because we still have a sin nature. And in phase three, we are saved from the presence of sin. It's only once we are absent from the body, face to the face with the Lord, that we no longer have a sin nature. Now, that's just a basic introduction to what salvation is and how we are using it primarily in this study is how do you know you're going to have an eternal destiny in heaven and not in the lake of fire? What is that? What does the Bible teach about what is necessary in order to avoid an eternal uh, condemnation? And the place where we have to start is where we should always start whenever we do a biblical study, and that is with God. The starting point should always be God and not man. We don't start with human experience. We start with God. We start with his character, and we start with what he begins to tell us in Genesis 1.1. So we have to go back to the beginning. And in Genesis 1-1, we begin to understand we, to all that is involved in this question. If you don't understand some of the things in Genesis 1, you can't really understand why God has done all of this to save us. Why should God save us? In other words, and the title for this first lesson is really, Why is man worth saving? Why is man worth saving? Why are you worth saving? And if you think you're worth saving because you're so nice and wonderful, well, guess again. We're all obnoxious sinners before God. Why is it that he has gone to all of this effort to send his son to die on the cross as a substitute for us? So we have to go back to Genesis 1-1 where we read, In the beginning God created. That is one of the most significant and pregnant sentences in all of the Bible. First of all, it tells us that the God of the Bible is distinct from the universe and all that is in it. That is a foundational reality that distinguishes Christianity from every other religion, and that is we have a creator God who is distinct from the creation. Second, it tells us that God is not the God of the Bible is not part of some chain of being, or how did they put it in the Lion King, the circle of life. 
See, that concept of the circle of life is just an old pagan concept that can go back to the ancient Greeks, and if you press it, you can take it all the way back to the paganism of the Babylonians, and that is that everything in the universe is interconnected, and there is nothing, not even the gods in ancient Babylonian paganism were distinct from the creation. They were nature gods, and they were gods that controlled the forces of nature, and they were identified with them, and that's... We've, we've uh, made that a science today, and we call it Darwinian evolution. But that is not that is in that that underlies every humanist human philosophy. It underlies every uh, every religious system, except for Judaism, that exists on the planet today. Uh, the God of the Bible is not part of that chain of being or the circle of life. He is completely distinct. From his creation, we must always go back to that creator-creature distinction. Third, the God of the Bible determines the nature of reality by the act of creating. Because God makes something, he determines and has the right to determine what the nature of his creation is. He is the creator. So he determines the nature of reality by the act of creating. Reality is not what you think it is or what I think it is. It's what God determined it to be from the moment of his creation. He is the one who's made the laws. He is the one who made everything to be what it is. He determines the nature of each and every detail, no matter how microscopic it is. Uh, he determines the nature of each and every detail in the creation and how that relates to every other detail in creation. Now go home and think about that tonight before you go to sleep. How God has determined as the creator the significance of every molecule, every subatomic particle, and how that relates to every other subatomic particle. Fourth, God, this implies that the God of the Bible establishes the categories of creatures and creation and distinguishes between those creatures. And the first thing he does is to create light and he separates the light from the darkness. That's categorization. He determines what is light and what is darkness and he distinguishes between those. When you go through Genesis 1, God says he creates each of the categories of animals and they replicate according to their kind. He establishes clear categories. Anytime the unbeliever thinks in terms of categories, he is thinking as God created him to think categorically. On the basis of evolution, there's no basis to think categorically because there's nothing, everything's fluid, everything flows from one thing to the next. So God creates uh, categories, the categories of his creatures, and distinguishes between those creatures. Man is distinct from all other creatures. What, three things, two things that are evident in Genesis 1. Number one, God is distinct from his creation, and number two, man is a living creature is distinct from all other living creatures. And fifth, as creator, the God of the Bible defines the role, the function, and the nature of each creature. So all of that derives just from the implications of Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created. Then we come to the next major piece of revelation in Genesis 1, and that has to do with the nature of man and the creation of man in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. There we read, then God said, let us make man, and there the term is Adam. Adam is the Hebrew term for mankind. It is a generic term for, 
for the human race. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Now, the issue here is what is the image and likeness of God, the image of God? And in theology, there are four basic views of the meaning of this term. The first is a physical term physical interpretation, and that is that just as the term, these two, here are the two terms, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Man is in the image of God, that is the term bet salmenu, and the term there is salam, uh, uh, and that is the term for an image, and it's the same word that is used to describe an image or an idol, a physical idol, and the second is according to the likeness damut, Kidmetunu, uh, from the Hebrew word damut, which has also has to do with likeness. But what we see here is that in the structure of the Hebrew in this verse, image, according to in our image and according to our likeness are in synonymous parallelism. So they are talking about the same thing. They are synonyms. It's like we would use the term bread and butter. We talk about somebody well in terms of their work, in terms of their vocation, well, that's their bread and butter. In other words, that's what feeds them. We're not talking about really in that idiom about two separate substances, bread and butter. We're talking about them as they come together in terms of uh, what somebody eats and just used idiomatically in a figure of speech for putting food on the table. So the phrase here, in, our, in, his, in the image of God and according to his likeness, refers to the same thing. Well, some have said that this is physical, and that's too, too narrow. Others look at it as a functional view. Others just define the image and likeness as a functional view. This limits the image to what man is to do. They would emphasize Psalm 8, 5 through 6, where the psalmist says that man was created to rule over the works of your hands. And this is only partly true because God's because the function of man is derived through the image. The image is not physical, it's not functional, but it affects both the physical and the functional. The third view is that it is relational, and that what all the image emphasizes is that man has the ability to relate to God. Again, that's true, but it doesn't go far enough. That's only one aspect of it. And the primary view is what's called the substantive view, that the image is something that is in man, has to do with the very essence and nature of man, and that man at his core being is in the image and likeness of God. And that means that it affects his function, what he is to do. It means that it enables him to have a relationship with God. That's true. And even more than that, because man is in the image of God, God creates man physically as a bipedal hominoid, in order to be the very best physical expression of who and what God is immaterially. Now, let me say that again. God does not have physical form. God doesn't look like you or me. God is a spirit, John 4 says. But when if you were to take God as a spirit and you're going to take him and you're going to squash him down 
and take the, this infinite God that's omnipotent, omnipresent, and you're going to squeeze him and squash him and stuff him down into a physical box so that, remembering his omniscience, God down the road knows he is going to incarnate himself into the form of this creature. And this is going to be the highest possible creaturely revelation of himself. So God says, if I'm going to make myself finite, what is the best shape I can put myself in so that my infinite glory is best expressed through this finite form? That's why God creates man to look the way he does. Is because of all the possible ways man could have been created, God says, this is the form that is going to give the highest and best expression of everything I am, taking an infinite God, squeezing him down into a finite package. So man is made the way he is physically in order to be the best expression of this immaterial image that is in God. So that is the main idea here. Man is created in the image of and likeness of God. Now, there's another aspect to these terms that are that that is important. First of all, we see in point number one that man is made in the image and likeness of God, and that emphasizes his his um, emphasizes his inner nature, his inner being, his essence, as God has created him, and it relates to his role, his function. Because this kind of terminology was also used in something we studied uh, a while back when we had our orientation to the Old Testament, and that is the uh, treaty form that was used to express, uh, to, to write covenants in the Old Testament, the suzerain vassal uh, treaty form. And this sort of terminology was typical where you had the suzerain, that is the great overlord. Today we would talk about uh, maybe the U.S. and its satellite states, and we talk about, used to talk about the Soviet Union and their satellite states. Well, in the ancient world, you'd have a great uh, kingdom or empire like Rome, and then there would be certain satellite nations, and they would be uh, under the protectorate of Rome. They might not be part of the Roman Empire, but they would be under Rome's protection, and they would in turn do certain things for Rome. They might be out on the frontier and provides a buffer state or something like this. You can go back into the ancient history and study the Hittite Empire, and they had certain vassals, certain cities or towns or regions where the rulers had become vassals or servants of the great king who headed up the major empire. And that vassal was a representative, an image of the great king. He represented the great king to the other nations around him. And so when we look at the terminology and the image and likeness of God, it indicates something about the, 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 the mankind. He is seen in that he is a representative of God over the creation. So point number one, man is made in the image and according to the likeness of God. And point number two, the image describes man's primarily man's immaterial makeup the composition of his soul, so that he can act like God acts over his creation. He can be an image, a mirror representation of God over the creation. Now, the interesting thing is that Adam's descendants are said to be created in the image of Adam, according to Genesis 5.3, but in Genesis 9.6, we're told in the command related to 
capital punishment. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. The image isn't lost at the fall. Now, in strict, rigid Calvinism that underlies lordship salvation, the image of God is lost at the fall. Now, that has serious implications. But notice, they, they derive that from a theological deduction, not from the exegesis of the text. And I'm going to demonstrate, and we'll demonstrate when we come back next time, that this imageness is not lost at the fall, but it is severely damaged at the fall. And that is one, the reason that God saves us is because we are still in his image. And that has to be recovered or restored. Point number three, that these terms explain not merely that man is in the image of God, but that he is the image of God. He is the reflection of God. He is to, to be the representative of God over creation. Fourth, man was thus created to fulfill the role as God's vicegerent. Man stands as the representative of God over all creation. He is to rule the creation in God's place. That means that man had, the implication of this is that man has limited sovereignty, limited autonomy. God gives, as we're going to see in the, in the, in Genesis 2, there's only one thing man is prohibited to do. But he's given the, the freedom, true freedom to do whatever he can. He has limited, limited, excuse me, limited autonomy. But what's going to happen after the fall is it's going to be even more restricted. So we'll call that restricted autonomy. So man is created to fulfill the role as God's vicegerent, his personal, God's personal representative and ruler over creation. So what man is, is inseparably linked to what he is to do, and that is to rule over creation. Now we're about out of time, and we've only covered about the first four of seven points, and we'll come back and cover the rest of this uh, next time as we answer the question, why is man worth saving? With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this time to study your word, to understand that you have saved us because you were created in your image, and despite the damage done by the fall, we are still in your image, and you have sent your Son in order to restore that image so that man, especially through our Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man, will ultimately be able to fulfill that original creation mandate to rule over the creation. Father, we thank you. Salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone, not by anything that we have done, but completely based on who and what you are and what Christ did on the cross. We thank you for these things in Christ's name. Amen.